In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So I think of, of all the depictions of heaven, uh, biblical, extra-biblical, and unbiblical, there's one in particular that I, I think I wrestle with, and that's this non-stop worship service for the rest of time. Because usually that depiction has to have a quick addition afterwards. But don't worry, you're actually going to like it. Uh, I'm not sure whether that speaks more to the quality of our worship services or to the quality of that particular, particular picture of heaven. Uh, but my concern is, you know, what if heaven doesn't have a liturgy like all souls? Then what is it going to be like? That would be scary. All kidding aside, you might be like me that there's a bit of apprehension at the idea of this endless worship service for all eternity. Now, this picture doesn't come out of nowhere. We get it from passages like what we read in Revelation 4 this morning. But it's important that we don't read this text, or really any biblical text, in a way that's different from what it's actually trying to get across. We sometimes end up treating scripture like some sort of magical reference recipe book with all the information that we can look up, like an encyclopedia, and whose words are all individually magical, apart from the words around them, or who said those words, or who those words were said to. We sort of treat it like like magic. And instead, we ought to approach scripture as the texts that they are, written through God's inspiration in a particular time and place for a purpose to a particular audience. Not words in an inspired vacuum, but words written by writers who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Revelation to John, for instance, is a letter to seven churches in what is now the country of Turkey. And what John sees is not meant to be a picture of the future eternal state of God's people, especially not chapter four, because it's pretty early in the book. Revelation has lots of horned beasts and false prophets to talk about. Revelation 4 isn't Revelation 22. John is, like the prophets of the Old Testament, given a behind-the-scenes look at the reality of heaven where God dwells in that moment. Heaven, as the Bible talks about it, is not some distant land light years away. It's behind a veil right next to us. The passage starts with a door being opened and John going through. The places where God's kingdom reigns here on earth are the places where heaven is peeking through that veil. Um, if you've seen the show on Netflix, Stranger Things, it's like a good version of the upside down. It's the, heaven is the right side up, if you will. And so we're living in the upside down. And so John is seeing Jesus seated on the throne, not eventually, but right then and there. And this view is spectacular. There are these 24 elders likely, likely referencing 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, God's people. There are these four living creatures, which the early church thought of as referencing the four gospels, each of them pointing to and worshiping Jesus. There's thunder and lightning. There's these incredible precious stones. It's this awe-inspiring picture of the glory of God. And in it, there is worship. Part of what we were made to do as humans is to worship God. Worship's at the center of what we do as a church. Uh, I think about the song of Zechariah in which he identifies God's oath to Abraham as you freed us so that we might worship you without fear. That that's the promise. You fulfilled your promise made to Abraham to free us from our enemies so that we might worship you without fear. Worship is what people were meant to do. And as many others have pointed out, if you don't worship God, you'll worship something else. And so we must rightly orient ourselves to give praise and thanks to the God who properly deserves it. And Revelation 4 gives us kind of a description of rightly ordered worship. Not a blueprint, it's not necessary to say these particular words, 
But if we look at it, the angels and elders and living creatures are giving praise to Jesus for who he is and for what he has done. By whose will all things exist, who created all things, who was and is and is to come. Part of what we were made to do is to be beings who rightly put God, most fully revealed to us in Jesus, in his proper place as Lord and King of our lives. And John gets to look behind the veil and see that reality in, its, in a sort of perfect vision that that Jesus who had ascended had done so to a throne and is now sitting as King and Lord. Not a reality that is to come, but a reality that was happening at that very moment. Now you may at some point in your life have heard the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, even if you don't recognize it by that name. It reads, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And with all due respect to the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Reformed folk who love it so much, it is incomplete at best and just wrong at worst. How do I know? How am I so arrogant to just make that claim? Well, let's look at Genesis. The creation account in Genesis tells us some very important things about who God is, who we are, and what the world is like. Things like the earth is good, it is a good creation. That men and women are both made in the image of God and therefore have value. That the God that, who created the cosmos did so not out of conflict or out of chaos, but out of design. This is a good earth that has design. And in Genesis 1, we have this poetry of day and night, morning and evening, one day at a time. There's a symmetry to it. We have human beings created last, the pinnacle of creation, made in the image of God, co-regents of this wonderful creation. The structure of Genesis 1 is like language describing the construction of a temple in which the image bearers are the ministering priests. It's this look from 20,000 feet. But then in Genesis 2, we hear the story told another way, with human beings given the task of gardening, their place in the garden to work and to keep. Humans were not created as passive observers of God's glory, simply to look at the good creation and say, yes, I agree, God, this is good. They were given a task, work to be done. The Garden of Eden is not perfect in its creation. And by that, I don't mean that it had a flaw, but that biblical perfection implies completion, that there's work still to be done. Jesus' sacrifice is perfect because on that cross he says, it is finished. There is no more sacrifice needed. But in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are called to subdue and have dominion. They're called to be co-creators by being fruitful and multiplying. I heard one person describe it as the relationship between a parent and an infant is beautiful and wonderful, but that relationship develops and changes as that infant becomes a child, becomes an adolescent, becomes an adult. It develops and grows. There's not something inherently flawed about babies, um, but as they grow, they become who they're becoming and the relationship with the parent grows. In the same way God's creation was made and isn't initially with flaws, but it was intended to expand, to continue. There is continuation built into God's design. His intent was to have these co-creators, these priests in the temple of his creation, continuing the human project of living out and cooperating with God's creative work. And so the not good of Adam's solitude isn't that he's lonely. Loneliness is sort of a modern way to look at it. The problem of Adam's solitude is that he needs a suitable helper, someone to work with him. And if the word helper sort of jars you a little bit, helper there isn't helper like Santa's little helper, or like I'm going to have a little helper alongside with me, but like a co-laborer. And if you think helper implies a hierarchy in Eden, 
we ought to look throughout the whole of scripture and find that the word helper is most often used to describe God's role alongside us. God is our helper. We see it most prominently as one of the names that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. He's going to send the helper to come alongside with us. So whatever we want to think about, about Eden and about Genesis, let's not get too caught up in who's the boss of Eden. The answer isn't Adam or Eve, it's God. So part of what God's designed us to do is to be living out our role as co-regents, co-creators, all of us. Genesis 2 as a blueprint for what God meant humans to be is a radical affirmation of vocation, of work, of actively living out the things that God calls us to do in order to see where we might act on what we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And while I've already criticized our reformed friends for their worship-heavy understanding of mankind's chief end, let me make up for it by invoking Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian and politician, who said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. John's vision of Jesus as worthy king from whom all creation is held together, combined with what we read in Genesis, shows us that humanity was intended to work alongside God in and for his whole creation. And it gives us this incredible opportunity to join in with God's work in all spheres of existence. Now, one way we might try and do that is to get caught up trying to make big theological statements about every last thing we do. Sometimes we're, you know, we want to talk about how scrubbing the tiles is mirroring the work of Christ and purifying our souls, or that cutting the grass reminds us of, of the parable of the wheat and the tares. But at some point, that just becomes incredibly exhausting to try and figure out which biblical parable I can apply to every last task. Instead, we can know that if we are exercising our gifts and talents for good, it is in fact good without having to find a Bible verse to attach to every activity. It means that cleaning and writing and teaching and playing and building and enjoying and painting and listening to your kids tell you all the weapons on the ninth ultimate Voltron that they just came up with in their imagination. That one might be really specific to my circumstance. <laughs> all those things are very good. It is good to do things. It's good to exercise our gifts. But at this point, we might lose ourselves in this sort of optimistic inevitability that all we need to do is go out and do whatever we want, and God's on our side, and it'll all be good, and everything will work out fine in the end. But Genesis doesn't give us that opportunity. I'll quote John Goldengay here, who includes this little quip at the beginning of a section of his commentary on Genesis. There's a children's story about Pinocchio, a wooden doll carved from a piece of pine who longs to become a real boy. After a series of adventures that come to a climax with his making a great sacrifice, this eventually happens, and everyone lives happily ever after. It is a typically moralistic children's tale, and it is thus typically undermined by the Old Testament. Here the first human being is molded by God from dirt, but it is purely God's generosity that makes God turn the puppet into a living human being. The challenge to live the right kind of life follows on that, and everyone does not live happily ever after. If our vision of human flourishing spends too much time on our efforts, on our work to make the kingdom happen, then we are no different from Adam and Eve who took the fruit of the tree they were told not to take, falling into the trap of thinking that grasping at power would make them like God. Without the worship of God, we imagine ourselves as gods. We imagine ourselves not as co-regents, but as heirs apparent. God the king is dead, long live king humanity. May it never be. Our work is not to take over for God, but to work alongside him. As our colleague this morning asks, teach us to discern your hand in all your works and your likeness in all your children. 
It's when we are seeing the world the way God sees it and seeing where he is moving that we're able to come alongside and do our part in this recreation process. But it's not just our own darkened hearts and misguided sense of progress that can get in the way of properly tending to the good garden that God created. Creation was subjected to futility and sin, and there are forces in this world that intentionally and unintentionally fight against God's purposes. Genesis and Revelation were both texts received and read by people for whom the world was not as it should be. The churches John was writing to were persecuted, you can't find them anymore. Those churches aren't there now. Genesis, whenever it was initially written, was received and codified into the form we have now while the Israelites were in exile, trying to understand who they were and how to make sense of a sovereign God while living in subjugation. And I think the text this morning that probably most closely mirrors our own experience is not the garden or the throne room, but the storm. The disciples are sailing across the Sea of Galilee. They're hit by the storm, and all they can do is yell at Jesus. We're perishing. Water is this curious thing in Scripture. It is what cleanses, and yet it is also a symbol for chaos and death. Water is the Red Sea the people of Israel are led through that eventually swallows up the Egyptians. Water is the tempest that Jonah is saved from through the belly of the fish. We sometimes forget. We think the fish is the punishment. The fish is the salvation from the storm. Water is the flood that God uses to purge the earth. And at the end of Revelation, we read that the sea is no more, not because we'll no longer drink water, but because chaos and death has been finally eliminated. I'm regularly thankful for the Psalms, or as I've heard them called, 150 different things you're allowed to say to God. I'm thankful for them for giving me the language I need to work out my own faith. The Psalm we read this morning is about God's generosity and his grace to us. But many psalms are full of language exactly like the disciples in the boat. God, this is all coming down around me and I don't know what to do. You said you would take care of me and I can't see you at all. Sometimes the psalms say, I have sinned and I'm receiving my just punishment. And sometimes the psalms say, I have not sinned. Why on earth am I being punished? I can't tell you how many times I have tried some sort of good action with good intentions only to find my best efforts insufficient or feeling like what I've done has been of no use at all, grand gestures made for no gain. There are times in which it feels like the sea is winning, but Jesus is Lord over the storm. And this is actually where I want to circle back to where we started in Revelation. In front of Jesus, in this vision, there is a sea of glass, the chaotic water, contained and stilled, tempest-free under the authority of Christ. And the rainbow of emerald, I'm not sure how... A green emerald can also be a rainbow, but the rainbow nonetheless is there as a reminder that God is not about to be in the business of world-destroying anymore. And let us not forget the symbol of water in baptism, in which we remind ourselves how Jesus chose to immerse himself into the chaos of death and rise out triumphant, not hovering overwards, but plunging himself into it. We treasure Revelation 4 because it gives us a look at realities greater than our own, that when we are in the midst of pouring ourselves out for what we think and what we hope is good, when we can't even understand what the good is, when we feel as if the wrong is oft so strong, he is the ruler yet. May we find ourselves turned to God in praise and worship for who he is and what he has done, reorienting our hearts to him. May we find ourselves looking for the ways that he has called each and every one of us to participate in the goodness of the created order, 
living out our callings to bring beauty and goodness and truth into every sphere of human existence. And when the sea rages around us, may we trust that the project is not ours but God's. And may we just get a glimpse of his gentle rule, saying with those around the throne of God, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Amen.